1: That's com. Code program.
2: Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History It. Today we're talking about the greatest maritime disaster in British history. It was a colossal tragedy, a catastrophe. It's one that's hardly talked about or remembered today. On June the 17th, 1940, the gigantic British ocean liner, the Lancastria was sunk by German Luftwaffe aircraft. It's now thought that more than 4,000 people died during the sinking. Probably around three times as many that died on the Titanic. But it was hushed up at the time, and it's an inconvenient story in a summer that's supposed to have a strong narrative from Dunkirk at the beginning of June to the successes of the Battle of Britain in July, August and September. But it's an event that we really need to remember. We've got Janet Dempsey on the podcast today. She's a former maritime record specialist. She worked at the National Archives for 15 years. She has gone through accounts of that day, from French civilians who witnessed it, to people that survived the catastrophic bombing and sinking on board the ship. The Lancastria was in Saint-Nazaire. You almost call it southwest France. Following Dunkirk, there were still plenty of British allied civilians and service personnel stuck in France, escaping from the German advance. There were other evacuations, as you'll hear, in ports in northern France. But by the middle of June, the pocket of territory the Germans didn't control was shrinking rapidly. And Saint-Azare, right up in the West France on the Atlantic coast at the mouth of the Loire River, had become one of the few places where people could try and escape to in the hope of being rescued by British ships. An astonishing number of people, vastly more people than she was designed to carry, crowded aboard the Lancastria with horrific results. After you've listened to this podcast, if you want to go and subscribe to History at TV, we talk a lot about Dunkirk and the summer of 1940, both in London and in the skies above Britain. If you wish to go and watch those documentaries, we have tons of documentaries, history documentaries, over at History at TV. We've also got all the episodes of the podcast without the ads. You don't have to listen to any ads. You just follow the link in the notes of this podcast click on that little link it'll take you straight over to history at tv and you can subscribe for less than the cost of a pint of beer every single month go for it folks go for it but in the meantime here's a podcast all about the sinking of the lancastria enjoy (music) janet thank you very much for coming on the podcast
3: hi dan you're very welcome nice to be here
2: This is one of the great maritime catastrophes of British and world history, and yet we don't give it any thought compared to, for example, the Titanic, a generation earlier. Why
3: is that? I think with the Titanic, there's a glamour around the Titanic that there certainly isn't around the Lancastria. The Lancastria was a victim, really, of the date that this catastrophe happened. Obviously, with the the fall of France and the denotus and things that we go into a bit later. I think, really, a uh, place in history is a consequence of the date that this happened.
2: I guess there were so many tragedies compounding and landing on top of each other, one after the other, at this point in British history, that it's been unremembered. Talk to me about the Lancastery itself.
3: What was its job? She was launched in 1922, and she was launched as the Tyrenia. She changed her name because passengers and crew couldn't actually pronounce the way the Tyrrhenia was spelled, and the crew actually nicknamed her the Soup tureen. So it was actually deemed um, better to call her something more pronounceable. But she actually celebrates a big anniversary this week, because her maiden voyage was actually on the 19th of June, 1922. So she would have been 100 years old this week.
2: She didn't quite make it to that age, but what, she was built on the
3: Clyde, like all the great ships.
2: She was indeed. A job what, a transatlantic liner? She
3: was a transatlantic liner. She ran scheduled routes between Liverpool and New York, but she was also a cruise ship. She was used to cruise around the east coast of America, the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. She was built for a crew of 300 and 2,200 passengers, which is quite significant actually in the unfolding events.
2: She can take a lot of passengers. Was it a sort of luxury? Was it a high end vessel?
3: It was. When she was originally fitted, she was first, second, and third class. In the 1930s, she underwent a refit, which meant she only took first and second class passengers. So, yeah, she was quite high end. What happened
2: in September 1939 to ships like Lancastria?
3: Basically, they were put under Admiralty orders, which just meant they were requisitioned for military service. September 1939, Lancaster was actually in the Bahamas on a cruise when she was called to New York for a refit. All her luxury innards, if you like, were taken away, all the silver and the china and the linens. She was painted battleship grey. All her windows were blacked out, And she was fitted with guns.
2: Did she carry troops to the expeditionary Force in Europe or was she used all over the North Atlantic?
3: No, originally she was requisitioned to carry troops to Norway and Iceland. She was one of 20 troop ships that actually was involved in the Norway operations, but just... Weeks after taking troops to Norway, the same troop ships were involved in Operation Alphabet, which was evacuating the same troops from Narvik in Norway.
2: And the problem with these ships is they are not designed. I mean, it's difficult for any ship if they get hit by a bomb or struck by a torpedo, but these civilian peacetime vessels, they're just they're not designed to withstand that kind of damage, are they?
3: No. No, not at all. That's why a lot of these ships actually had military escorts, That they weren't actually designed. You know, if you're talking about something with large ornamental staircases down the middle of the ship, that's not going to withstand the same sort of battering as a battleship.
2: Which were incredibly sort of compartmentalised, little warrens of doors that can shut out water and that kind of stuff, try and give it a bit of time after catastrophic damage. So let's get to the Dunkirk evacuation We'll know about the little ships. This is a very, very big ship. What did the very, very big ships do to help withdraw the defeated British and French troops from the continent?
3: Well, this was a bit of a oversight by the Admiralty. A lot of the French ports like Dunkirk are very, very shallow. So when they send the big ships in to evacuate troops, the ships can't actually get anywhere near to the shore and this is where the little ships come in. They're basically used as tenders to get to the beaches, get the troops, and then take them out to the big ships. Unfortunately, with Dunkirk, a lot of the troops that were evacuated from Dunkirk weren't actually brought home. They were taken to Le Havre and Cherbourg. So the evacuation of Dunkirk, Op Dynamo, wasn't the big, evacuation home that a lot of people tend to think it was. Churchill wanted a second BEF setting up further west. So a lot of these troops were taken further west. Unfortunately, the troops that were at Le Havre, the advance of the German army was so fast and so ferocious that a lot of the troops at Le Havre found themselves stuck again. And then we had Operation Cycle, and Operation Cycle actually evacuated troops from Le Havre. There was some 11,000 British troops and some 26,000 Allied troops evacuated from Le Havre. Unfortunately, that still meant there were over 150,000 troops still in France. So they were all advised to head west for any open port they could make their way to and between the 15th and the 25th of june we saw operation aerial kick in unfortunately with dunkirk and le havre they were single ports so the raf the royal navy and these ships that had been taken up from trade were all concentrated in one area unfortunately with operation aerial You had ports all the way from Cherbourg all the way down to Saint-Jean-de-Luz, deep in the Basque country. So you had hundreds of miles of these ports being used to evacuate tens and tens of thousands of British troops, sailors, civilians, anybody who felt they were trapped in this German onslaught we've
2: forgotten about these post-Dunkirk evacuations, haven't we? The people just being told, head west and a bit south and find some coast and the uh, Navy will come pick you up. So tell me about uh, the scene in Saint-Nazaire, which is down in the Bay of Biscay, so below Normandy and Brittany, much further from the UK. Tell me about the evacuation that takes place there.
3: Well, originally Lancastria and Franconia were sent from Plymouth to Brest to actually evacuate troops from Brest. But by the time they got there on the 16th of June, Brest had already fallen. So the decision was taken to send them even further south to San nazaire Unfortunately, the scene at San nazaire was chaos. Just to give you an idea of how chaotic it was, people were making their way to San nazaire because soldiers and sailors and airmen were actually buying Michelin maps from local shops to find out where the ports were on that. Bay of Biscay and obviously San nazaire comes up in big letters so they were making their way to San nazaire in their tens of thousands and all the war diaries for that period just show a scene of absolute chaos. You have a lot of support units veterinary service logistics units which are not like a regiment like the regiments you had at Dunkirk where you have A proper solid order, you have somebody in charge, you have somebody who's given the orders. In a lot of these cases, you've got groups of people who are corporals, privates, there's no officers around, there's nobody taking names, there's nobody making lists, there's nobody giving orders. So it's a scene of utter chaos.
2: And there are British Civilians, people who lived in Paris, members of the embassy, weren't they? Also heading pell-mell down there as well.
3: Yeah, there were also a lot of Belgians who'd walked all the way across from Belgium to Saint-Nazaire, including a group of Belgian children who found themselves aboard the Lancastria.
2: Tell me about the Lancastria arriving. What date did it arrive and was there just people thronging the quayside? Was it immediately clear that they'd have to start loading tons of people on board?
3: Yeah, she arrived at um, four o'clock in the morning on the seventeenth, but she wasn't actually allowed to start loading until six o'clock in the morning because the French harbour master didn't want any lights used in the evacuation. Bear in mind, Saint-Nazaire, again, is quite a shallow port, so she's anchored five miles off, so we've got these small boats, these tenders, bringing people over and and over and over, she started loading at six in the morning. By noon, you had two stewards, Welch and Beatty, literally counting people on with these little hand counters. And by lunchtime, there were already over 5,000 people on board a ship designed to take 2,200. Steward Beatty was actually called away to start serving drinks in his lounge which had been turned into a sergeant and warrant officer's mess. So he actually stopped counting at lunchtime and bear in mind that there were people coming over to that ship all the way up to a few minutes before she was bombed. So after the count stopped, you still had three and a half hours of people coming on board that ship. So. In my estimation, from documents I've looked at, I reckon by quarter to four in the afternoon, she probably had about 6,500 people on board. The master of the ship and the first officer described scenes of the holes being absolutely full, stairways being full, every available space literally had people crammed into it.
2: listen to dan snow's history we're talking about the lancastria more coming up
3: aeroplanes spacesuits condoms coffee plastic surgery warships over on the patented podcast by history hit we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own we uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We manage to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths.
2: So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time. Can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West.
3: And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress.
2: You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you live on to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit
3: on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday.
1: Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan Warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: What happened at course to four on the 17th?
3: A JU-88 flew directly over and dropped four bombs on the Lancaster. One hit the funnel. It didn't go down the funnel, as some people believe, but it fell very, very close to. And the other three went through hatches two, three and four. In number two hold... There were 800 RAF personnel who took a direct hit. But in number three hold was 500 tonnes of surplus oil that was supposed to have been taken off Lancastria when she was at Liverpool before she was given orders to sail for Brest. And of course, what happened was the bomb blew holes in both sides of the ship. So this oil basically formed a huge oil slick, which was to have dire consequences for those trying to get away from the ship. And so was she moored up
2: at the time? Was she alongside?
3: Yes, she was moored up. She was moored up along with another ship called the Orinsey, who was also there to evacuate. The Orinsey took one hit but wasn't badly damaged and the Orinsey actually took a lot of the survivors from the Lancaster and managed to get them home. But the scene at the Lancaster when she was bombed, because the bombs blew holes in both sides of the ship, she listed very badly and literally went under in less than 25 minutes. You would have had A lot of people dying in the ship as soon as those bombs hit, as I say, the 800 RAF personnel who were in number two hold would have been killed immediately. There were also people who talk about, as the ship is listing, getting trapped behind wreckage, getting trapped underneath wreckage, so they would never have been able to get off the ship at all. The people who did get off the ship found themselves trying to swim through a huge oil slick now, the JU-88s was still actually flying over a machine gun in the water, machine gun and the people in the water. So you would have had casualties there. But the machine gun fire was also setting fire to the oil slick. So you can imagine the smell of oil trying to swim through this. You've got fires, you've got smoke, you've got people in small boats trying to pick survivors out of the water. You had soldiers who were basically stripping off their uniform because their oil-soaked uniform were pulling them down. You had a situation where you had the very old-fashioned style of cork life jackets, so you had people trying to jump off a listed ship in cork life jackets who, when they hit the water, had their neck broken for their efforts, so you had a lot of casualties there. It was as chaotic as the situation that was going on in France at the same time.
2: She sank in something like 20 minutes.
3: One of the other ships, the Master, timed it at about 24 minutes, which is very fast. If you've got 6,500 people trying to get off a ship, 24 minutes is no time at all.
2: And do you think around 4,000 people uh, were killed?
3: Yes, I believe there were around 6,500 people. We know 2,500 people survived. So the basic maths would say around 4,000 people died on that ship.
2: What was the response? Did the British government admit that this had happened?
3: No. The first thing the British government did was to slap a D-notice on the news story. A D-notice basically bans it from being reported for a period of time but the d notice on the Lancastria was never lifted. Now, Churchill said much, much later that with the fall of France happening the same day and with hell breaking out across Europe, it was literally a case that the government forgot to lift the d notice But the thing is, the story broke in the American press six weeks later, and it was widely reported in the British press the following day and for a few days after that but i think the lancaster the story of the lancaster she's the victim of the dates really because everybody was more worried about the fall of france what was going to happen to britain and don't forget on the 18th of june churchill did his finest hour speech you know hitler will never land on these shores while we've got a navy and all the rest of it the last thing churchill wanted was the British people thinking that the Navy and our shipping was vulnerable to this sort of catastrophe. So I think it was probably a case of they wanted the news story suppressed for a while, but I don't think the intention was to keep it buried forever.
2: I find it a mind-blowing story. It's a greater loss of life than the Titanic and Lusitania combined. It's the greatest maritime disaster in British history. But it just feels like it doesn't fit in the narrative, does it? Because you have people want to talk about Dunkirk. That's the kind of snatching some kind of victory from the Jaws defeat. Then we're into Churchill's finest hour and then the Battle of Britain. And to go, oh, by the way, there was also the worst maritime disaster in British history, kind of inconveniently at that period. It doesn't work for the way we remember it or for people trying to tell the story and spin us at the time.
3: History is written by the victors. If there's an inconvenient truth in there, then why tell it? What I find really quite sad is that medals for the people on the Lancastria were only actually issued in 2008 and by the Scottish Government. And then they were only claimable, if you like, until 2015, by which time survivors of that disaster have passed away Families may never have been told the story. We read many, many accounts of people who were so traumatised by what happened on the Lancastria, they never ever spoke about it to families.
2: They were encouraged not to talk about it, I suppose, when they came back. Did those survivors, on the whole, were they able to find alternative transport home or were there further catastrophes and pitfalls?
3: I don't know any of the survivors who didn't make it home. A lot of survivors were taken back to the Bay of Biscay, back to Saint Nazaire, back to the places where the fishermen who had come out to help with the rescue took them back into France. And this was a further complication about the numbers who'd died and who'd survived, because people held on to the belief that they'd been taken back to France and taken prisoner of war. So you've got this further complication. Is he a prisoner of war? Was he lost? As I say, the whole thing was just chaotic. However, in 1940, the War Office opened a branch of its casualty office to start actually looking into who was on that ship, who died, who survived. And for some 12 years, they sent letters out to people correspondence with people they knew who were on the ship. Did you see such and such? Did they survive? Were they taken prisoners of war? Did they die? I've read a lot of these files. That's why I'm coming from with some of my figures. But even after all the work that they put in, it was still impossible to determine exactly who was on board.
2: Such a. Remarkable story that reminds us of the chaos that was going on in France after Dunkirk. Dunkirk was not an end to that story. Janet, thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking about it.
3: A couple of local observations. A local called Michel Luget wrote that the bodies did not reach the shore immediately after the ship sank. But in July, the bodies came ashore in large numbers. Here in Pornichet, for example... There were two or three at each tide. And at the Pont de Bec, there were others. At Saint Marguerite, all along the coast, there were corpses that were given back by the sea. At each tide, there were corpses being washed up on the beach. However, later in the summer, Charles Merle writes We were walking along the coast on the 2nd of December, and that's when we noticed there were bones, more and more bones, and lots of military clothing. And in these clothes that had really deteriorated and were damaged, we collected the wallets of these poor men who drowned to identify them. But there were so many bones, we never collected them. It was just not possible. To me, that is the absolute perfect illustration.
2: Janet, certainly is. Thank you very much for coming on and, and reminding us all of this terrible chapter in our history.
3: You're very welcome, Dan. Thank you. I feel have the history
2: on our shoulders... All this tradition of ours, our school history, our
1: songs, this part of the history of
2: our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars, or its equivalent. A review would be great please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. Really, really appreciate it.